Well, let me have you guess where we're turning to in our Bible. Anybody want to take a stab at it? Right? The Gospel of John, right? This is week number 83 in the Gospel of John. 83 weeks. And I don't know about you, but slow walking through this Gospel is been uh, something that's been really amazing to see some of the things I haven't seen before. Just even in our text today, which I've read many times, there's just something I'd never really noticed before. And so it's amazing what the truth that we have there. And I think Gospel of John is just an incredible book for people to start with um, in their faith walk. Or if you uh, have a friend or a neighbor who doesn't know Christ and you say, read the Bible like Debbie Friley did. Sometimes, you know, our natural tendency, of course, is to start at the beginning and I think starting in Genesis sometimes can be really, really difficult for people who have very little uh, religious knowledge. And so I, I always encourage starting the Gospel of John. In fact, in the church office, we have some little Gospel of Johns that you can give out. So I encourage you to do that. It's been a great book. So we're in chapter 20, verse 24 through 29. Chapter 20, verse 24 through 29. Let's read the text together, pray, and then we'll look at this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them, or the disciples, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came. And stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, your scripture, and as Chip mentioned, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, and we thank you that you build our faith. Sometimes I know coming on Sunday, and we feel like really nothing changes about our life, but we know that you are working, and little by little, you're sanctifying us. You're progressively making us more like Jesus, those who know you and are called according to your purposes, God. And I pray that this week we will be more receptive of your Holy Spirit's work in our life, and just the, 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 the prompting that you give us through your word and through the Holy Spirit's power to live out the things that you've taught us. And God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We had an interesting little tradition when I was growing up at our church, and I think maybe some other churches that were similar, similar to mine, they did this kind of thing. But when a pastor who would come in, a special pastor, an evangelist, a revivalist, or maybe a missionary would come in, the kids of the church would take our Bibles and we would go and ask the guy to sign our Bible, right, in the cover of the Bible, sign our Bible, and then put like a verse or something there in the Bible. And I was, a few years back, I was at my parents' house uh, back when they lived up in West Virginia, and I was looking through an old Bible and noticed the Bible with all the signatures of all the pastors covering several different pages. And then I noticed that there were some names that were scratched out of the, 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 the names of the Bible cover. And I looked at those more carefully through the scratching, and I noticed that these were people along the way who had had moral failures 
and they got like eliminated from my Bible, right? You know, as a kid, I heard my parents talking about this, overheard these, this pastor who fell or this person who did this, and I'm like, oh, yeah, take them out of here. I don't want them in, in my Bible. And I think it's interesting because we tend to hold people to the standard sometimes of perfection and failure in our congregations are, it's not, we don't, we look at it as like, it's like the unpardonable sin. Like you can't recover if you do this or do that. And what I love about the Bible compared to ancient history books and ancient texts that we have, the Bible is very, very honest about its heroes to the point of throughout scripture, you see the people who were the foundations of Judaism and Christianity, the flaws they had. Think about Abraham and Moses. If you're familiar with Scripture, you know those guys both had big moral failures. Moses killed somebody. David killed somebody. Solomon had multiple wives and committed fornication again and again. And then you jump to the New Testament, you have Peter, who we've seen throughout the gospel. I love Peter, but Peter was a very flawed disciple, was he not? A very flawed human being, and we find out about that through the pages of Scripture. And then we come to Thomas today, and Thomas is one of the inner circles, in the inner circle of Jesus. He's one of the disciples that Jesus poured his life into, yet we find in this text that he just boldly states, unless I see proof, I'm just never going to believe. I cannot believe what you're telling me. So, Yes, Jesus' death was difficult and confusing for the disciples. They didn't understand that they didn't have any theological category for a Messiah who would come and die and then three days later be resurrected. They just didn't have a category for that to occur. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, they more than likely assumed that Jesus would be resurrected during the resurrection of the end times. They didn't expect, expect Jesus to come back three days later, even though Jesus had warned his disciples about what would happen. He had told them, yet we still find them just falling through on what he told them they would do. He said back in chapter 16, the hour is coming, indeed it's here, when you're going to be scattered. So they, we saw, had scattered. They had left in fear, but they'd regrouped, still in fear, in Jerusalem. And we saw this last week, or two weeks ago, behind secure uh, locked doors. And we saw that Mary Magdalene had gone to the disciples and insisted that she was an eyewitness and seen Jesus alive that morning, resurrection morning. Yes, Jesus' body had disappeared. It was strange it was gone. But the disciples questioned her. It appears from the text that no one except for maybe John believed this had happened because Jesus had died. I mean, Jesus was dead. He was dead, and people don't come back from the dead, do they? And even though they should have had an understanding that Jesus' power and his authority, yet they didn't get this. They saw Lazarus come back from the dead, but they did not see this happening. And Mark and Luke tell us that actually, which is not in John's account, that Peter had interacted with Jesus, and he also came and proclaimed to the disciples that Jesus was alive. But we, see, we saw last week that on the evening of Resurrection Sunday... Something amazing happened. Jesus appeared to all of the disciples that were gathered in the room. Verse 19, if you flip back or scroll back to verse 19, the doors being locked, this was last week, 19, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, they were scared that they were going to be accused of stealing the body of Jesus. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. 
So Jesus comes and he says, peace be with you. Sadly, Thomas wasn't among them. Look at verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So he's one of the ones who Jesus built so much into, gave so much into his life. Thomas, if you trace him back through the Gospel of John, besides being mentioned as a disciple of Jesus in lists, John mentions Thomas several times back in chapter 11 he announced Jesus announced he was going to Judea and he was going to go to back to Jerusalem to minister and Thomas uh, commented that he was willing to follow Jesus even though Jesus was going into the mouth of the lion I mean he was headed back to danger back to where they wanted to kill him but Thomas committed himself that hey I, Jesus I'm going with you that was back in chapter 11 verse 8 and then in chapter 14 Jesus warned the disciples of his imminent departure and that he was going back to his father's house and he was going to prepare a place for them and the disciples were confused by this mysterious language that Jesus was using Thomas needed clarification and so back in 14 verse 5 he said Lord we don't know where you're going so how can we know the way like we don't know where you're headed how can we follow you there but of course, Jesus wasn't talking about a route to take. Jesus was talking about himself because Jesus answered Thomas with this amazingly famous verse. And this incredible verse is a response to Thomas's question. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus said these things to Thomas. Thomas was bold. I'll go with you. But now we find Thomas confused. He's lost. He doesn't know the way, right? He, he's very lost in, it, in where he's at. And Jesus told him, had told him to trust him. Keep your eyes on me, Thomas. Trust me. Yet he doesn't believe. And his 10 closest friends, who would have been the other disciples, right? The disciples were telling him, we saw Jesus, right? We've seen the Lord. Oh, look, it, it's bad to miss things in life, right? I mean, I've known a guy who literally missed the birth of his kids because his, his son because he was high on drugs. I know another guy who missed his own wedding. I read about him who missed his wedding because he was drunk. But to miss Jesus's post-resurrection appearance, like, it doesn't get any worse than this. And then the fact that he refuses to believe his friends that Jesus was actually there. And so he tells the other disciples that he has to see the proof, right? Unless I see, verse 25, I see the hands uh, on his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And I think Thomas's reaction, stating he must touch Jesus, led, leads me to believe that Thomas isn't completely doubting Jesus was there. I think he just felt like Jesus was a ghost or an hallucination that the other disciples were seeing. But the, the fact that he demanded this empirical proof shows us that there was something like, I, I just don't believe it was truly the Jesus I knew before his crucifixion. It wasn't the Jesus I touched and had dinner with and hung out with. That's not the Jesus who showed up here. So unless I see that Jesus, then I'm not believing. And what's interesting, if you look back in verse uh, 21, flip back and it'll be on the screen, I believe, as well. Jesus, during his appearance to the disciples, the earlier appearance, you remember what he told them? We looked at this last week. He says, as the Father has sent me, 
Even so, I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. All right, so get the picture. Jesus sends his disciples out to share the good news with those who don't believe it, don't know it. Yet their very first encounter with an unbeliever, and the guy doesn't believe them, right? I've never seen that. I've never heard that talked about on this passage of Scripture. That the commission that Jesus gave them, go, do my work, spread my word, spread the gospel. Their first guy that is recorded they spread the gospel with is one of their own who doesn't believe, and he's like, no, I don't believe. Show me proof. And that tells me some things, and one of the things it tells me is the fact that rejection is part of sharing the gospel, right? Rejection's going to be built in. People will not always and often respond to the positive. And so when we give the gospel, it's our job not to convert people, not to twist arms and make people believe things. Our job is just to be an ambassador of the good news, to share the good news, to point people to Jesus. And then it's up to him. It's up to them and, and, and Jesus and his work to supply the faith and bring them to him. And that's what Paul tells us in Ephesians. He says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So God is the one that gives faith. It's a gift from God. And our response to salvation is faith. We have responsibility, but faith doesn't come into existence on its own. Scripture clearly says it's a gift from God. We've seen this throughout the book of John. Now, you've heard, many of you have heard talks about faith and the fact that we live by faith all the time. But there's natural faith and then there's supernatural faith. I mean, it takes faith to believe a lot of things we do. That's natural faith, right? When you throw something in the microwave, you believe this invisible force is going to cook your food. Do you not? I mean, you don't see the microwaves, particles cooking or whatever the radiation is doing, which I wouldn't advise eating that stuff, right, out of the microwave. Radiation cooking your food. Of course, the one you've heard before, the wind that blows your trees. You don't see the wind, but you see the trees blowing. You can't see heat, but if you were out too long yesterday working in the yard, you probably have some sunburn on your skin, or at least a little browner, if you didn't put sunscreen on. How about this? The parent who stays up at night, out of love, waiting for their teenager to get home from that game or activity, you can't see that love, but you see the results of that love, right? That, like, I'm not sleeping until my teenager is home safe and sound. That love, it's invisible. We don't see it, but we believe that it's true. Many of you have seen this picture that possibly will be on the screen here. Yeah, there we go. It, this looks like maybe an accidental or a background photo, but this is actually a photo taken from Voyager 1, four billion miles away from Earth, and this little tiny point of light in the sunbeam there coming down toward the right is Earth. That's where we live. This is, that's our planet from four billion miles away. Now, some of you are like, ah, no, not, not buying that. That's not true. But most of us, we accept that to be true, right? We accept that was a photograph from Voyager 1. So we have faith in a lot of different things. And this is natural faith that we have. 
and it's based upon evidence, right? Uh, at least some evidence. Uh, that's important. Experience is important for us. We know that the microwave oven cooks the food even though we can't see it because we've done it time and time again. But when it comes to faith to embrace God, faith to believe in this spiritual kind of faith that, we, that God gives us, you can take the smartest person in the world, put a team of the smartest people together, tell them all to look at the evidence of Christianity, the historical record, debate the logic and the reason, and all of them, in fact, probably the majority of them, if they're unbelievers, will not put their faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because faith is a supernatural gift from God. And while we who have been in the Word and heard the Word, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, we hear and God gives us the faith to believe because faith to believe isn't natural. I love it. this quote by Paul Tripp. He says, faith isn't natural for us. It, it sure isn't. To have faith in something we can't see is not natural. Doubt is natural. Fear is natural. Pride is natural. But faith in the words and the works of another isn't. And for that, there's grace. And so when we think about supernatural faith, the fact that we believe, that you believe there is a God and he rewards those who earnestly seek after him, that takes faith. But Christian faith, look, is not against evidence. In fact, our faith is based upon evidence, the historical record. We believe in the historical testimony of the apostles to the person and the work of Christ. And that's why we value our scriptures, because this is the historical record. But follow this. I think this is the point for the interaction with Thomas and what's going on here today. The Gospel of John has an intentional focus beyond Thomas to the person Thomas represents. The readers who, who don't, like Thomas, have the luxury of being able to see or touch Jesus. Let me say that again. I hope that's on the screen. The Gospel of John has an intentional focus beyond Thomas to the persons he represents, the readers who also have not seen or touched Jesus. And so I think it's, at this point, a couple things. It's helpful to delineate, to differentiate between doubt and unbelieving. Because as I look at Thomas's reaction, Thomas isn't just experiencing some doubt. Thomas is rejecting. And I love Sean McDowell, how he phrases this up. He says, doubt is not rejection of belief, but holding a belief with hesitation and uncertainty. So doubt involves believing something with questions about whether it is true or not. So when we think about it this way, it's clear that Thomas was not a doubter. He did not doubt the resurrection. He doubted the resurrection. He didn't doubt, just doubt the resurrection of Jesus. He completely and fully rejected the resurrection of Jesus unless he had physical proof for it. So maybe throughout history we called Thomas doubting Thomas, but maybe actually a better definition or description of him would be disbelieving Thomas. And, and Sean McDowell gives these two points, and they're going to be on the screen, and I think these are very, very helpful. Calling Thomas a doubter implies that doubt is opposed to faith. Doubt is part of the human condition. As long as you have faith, you will have doubt. And then the second thing, calling Thomas a doubter implies that certainty is required for belief. If we refer to Thomas as a doubter when he was not a believer, then aren't we implying that people with doubts don't genuinely believe either? 
When people think belief requires certainty, doubts and questions can be paralyzing, painful, and sometimes even lead to despair. So I think it's important, and I love what Sean McDowell writes on this. And I think of verses like Jude, which, by the way, Jude is the book we're going to go to after we're done with John. If you know the book of Jude, you say Jude verse 22 is like, what chapter is that? Well, it only has one chapter, right? So going a whole different direction, right? Long book of John, short book of Jude. But Jude 22 says, and have mercy on those who doubt. So it implies that doubt is not the opposite of faith, and also that certainty is not required for belief. And so I, I, I look at the heroes of the Bible, I, I start, back where we started, the heroes of the Bible were flawed, sinful people. And the same thing is true with us, that we're flawed, simple people. As long as we are held captive in this flesh, in this body, we are going to struggle with sin and doubt from time to time. It's going to happen. Part of the human equation, part of being human. That's not going to be true forever. One day our faith will end in sight, Jesus says. One day we'll see Jesus faith to faith, and then it's going to be perfect. I mean, we don't need faith anymore because we'll have knowledge. We'll have Jesus. We'll have him. And so until then, we recognize that this is an imperfect journey. A few years back, many years back now, we were in Dallas and we were um, at a youth pool party and an event and Michelle and I were standing there with a friend, our worship pastor, and our daughter Shelby, who was probably like five or six, and their son, Jacob, who was at the same age as Shelby. And we were standing there talking, and we weren't really paying attention to the little kids. They were just standing with us, and they were talking to one another. The, the students were out there, and there's a hot tub here in front of us. And we were talking, we looked around, and all of a sudden, Jacob fell into the hot tub, and all of a sudden, his head just completely disappeared. He was like fully immersed in, in the water. He was totally down into the, into the hot tub, which, you know, hot tub is only, you know, a few feet deep. It just shows you how short... Jacob was at the time. Well, his dad jumped in there and grabbed him and pulled him out. All right. Later on, we were headed home and Shelby in the car, she said, wow, Jacob almost drowned tonight. And we were like, no, no, Shelby, Jacob didn't almost drown tonight. Jacob was in the water and we were there and it was in deep water and we could easily get him out of there. There's no risk or chance that Jacob was going to drown. And I think when it comes to your doubts and to the things that sometimes we just struggle with faith on, we think we're drowning, and God says, you're not drowning. You're not drowning. Look, I love you, and I can handle your struggle. The heroes of the Bible struggled. I can handle your struggle. Keep your eyes upon me. Keep your eyes upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Know that when we look at Jesus and we allow that his truth, his gospel message, just to be received into our lives more and more, faith is built up through that. God uses that in order to build faith into our life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, by receiving the message, the gospel word and the truth of Christ. And so if you're an unbeliever in here, let me give you a, a few really key things that you should know today. If you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you know that you're not a Christian, doubt should not stop you from making a commitment to God. Doubt should not stop you from putting your faith in Jesus. Doubt should not stop you from becoming a passionate disciple of Jesus. Faith is a decision of the will 
to act on what the mind believes to be true. And so it's important to remember that faith is only needed when you don't know something for sure. When all doubt is gone, then all faith is gone, and knowledge is all that's left. And so if you're struggling, and like, I got to get to a place where I just know this, and I just like completely believe this, realize that you're sitting among a bunch of flawed people today who at times desire more empirical evidence because believing in something we can't see and touch is hard. It is. It's hard. But God gives grace, as Paul Tripp said. He gives grace. And so faith is believing in something, and I'm just going to put my trust, put my faith in it. Let me give you a real quick illustration. A couple years ago at chapel, I gave this illustration. I... Throughout my life, I don't know why this was the only talent I think that God actually gave me that really wasn't much of a talent at all. Like, once I reached my, you know, like 18 or 19, I have never met anybody who is about my body weight who can beat me in arm wrestling. All right? I've never met somebody. I'm sure there's thousands of people out there that could, but I've never met anybody. Okay? So arm wrestling, I concluded my dad liked to arm wrestle. I liked to arm wrestle. My brother like to arm wrestle, and we were decent at arm wrestling, all right, against people our size. And so I had this belief through experience and through things that had happened in my life, I had this belief that I'm a pretty good arm wrestler, all right? So in chapel, I said this, because I knew that at chapel, the biggest guy in the chapel here at Grace was about 220 pounds, and, and i pretty confident I could beat him, all right? So, so I said, I held up a $100 bill, and I said, Pick out the biggest, the strongest guy in this room to arm wrestle me. I will give this $100 bill to, who, to if he can come down here and he can defeat me. All right, so why did I do that? Because I had a pretty strong belief in the fact that I wasn't just throwing my money away. Through history and through things that had happened and people I'd encountered and arm wrestled over the years, I believed that I could beat anyone. Well... I did. I, I, they sent down the biggest guy. I beat him super easy, all right? I did. But here's the thing about faith, all right? I put my money, so to speak, really, and really did where my mouth was. I believed it, and so I trusted in my ability. But you know what? I wouldn't put $1,000 up, even in that chapel service. Why? Because that was just too much to risk, right? I mean, it could be like a, a freak kid with some super strength that I didn't know about that came down and beat me, and then like, ah, oh, man, $1,000. I can't, I can't go home now and tell my wife I lost $1,000 in chapel today, right? There was too much risk involved in that. And so you see there's degrees of faith, but I had faith. I believed, and I believed it to the point where I trusted it. I'm going to give $100 to whoever can beat me. And so I think our faith, sometimes we think if there's any uncertainty, any question that like, oh, I'm just paralyzed from doing anything for God until I can like get there where I can just like totally believe him. Act on the faith that you have. In fact, scripture tells us that God gives out faith and measures it out according to his desire. And so that means in this room, there's varying degrees of faith. That's not an excuse for you to all of a sudden like, I don't have to grow because I don't have to have a lot of faith. The thing is, God puts within us his spirit, his truth, and he gives us this desire to know him more and more. And that's how we know our faith is real, because it's not natural to desire that. It's not natural to want a relationship with someone we can't see. It's not natural to put our 
complete trust build our life around the promises of this book. That doesn't come natural to you. That is a gift of God. And it may be like Thomas, where you're, like, you're, you're just, you totally don't believe. I just don't believe. There's no evidence in your life you believe. But faith is, I'm putting my trust in Jesus. All the trust I have at this moment, I'm giving it to Jesus. That's belief, even though it may have doubt involved. And so Thomas says, I'm never going to believe. He demanded empirical evidence. But look what happens in verse 26. Eight days later, right? Eight days later. If you do the math and you know Jewish math, this would have been the next Sunday, all right? The next Sunday, because Jews counted Sunday would be day one, day two, so on. So this is kind of a side note here. This already shows us that Christians were gathering on Resurrection Day to celebrate Jesus and his resurrection. And so eight days later, Sunday, that, that Jesus waits all this time in order to show up again, all right? Can you imagine what that was like for Thomas, right? Look at the verse. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, so he'd stuck with them, although the doors were locked. I'm not sure why we don't see the boldness there after he breathed the Holy Spirit. It may be like what I said last week, that th- th- he had not fully given the Holy Spirit to them. It was the Holy Spirit came on them at that moment, but we're going to see in Acts when Jesus gave the Holy Spirit, and they had the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit wasn't leaving. He was there permanently. This incredible boldness for, and passion for Jesus came out. But we don't see that at this point. They're still locked, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So he had to wait a long time for, for this, right? Eight days for Jesus to show up. And imagine the other disciples. The other disciples at this point would have been celebrating, Jesus is alive, right? He's alive. High five, Peter. Jesus is alive. High five, James. Jesus is alive. High five, Thomas. All right. Yeah, I forgot. You don't believe, right? I hope you get it, man. Believe us. Believe us. Believe our testimony. And then Jesus shows up in the room again. And he gives Thomas exactly what he demanded. Look at verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Put your, hand, uh, your finger here and see my hand, and put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And I, I love that. It's almost like, I mean, Jesus knew exactly what Thomas had requested, exactly what he needed. And his grace met Thomas in that moment. And Jesus used signs throughout the Gospels. He performed signs many, many times to authenticate who he was. And he does this for Thomas. And I believe that he does this for Thomas. As I stated earlier, he did this for Thomas because this is for us. This is for the gospel record. This is for the apostles' testimony. And so disbelieving Thomas is here to help us today believe. And how does Thomas respond? Verse 28, it doesn't say he touched. He could have, but my guess is that he answered my Lord and my God without getting even getting near Jesus. Jesus shows up and Jesus says this. And and Thomas just responds, man, what a fool I was, right? What a fool I was not to believe. Jesus, you're God. And this is the first time in the gospel that Jesus is referred to by somebody else as God. Did you know that? Jesus is referred to as God by Thomas. And we've gone full circle back to the beginning, haven't we? Back to the beginning, in the beginning, was the word John said, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And then here's where it all hinges right here, verse 29. Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Yeah. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the point of the text, what John wants us to see, is the comparison between the fact that Thomas was able to see Jesus, but later believers will not be given such an opportunity. Thomas was given this. Thomas and the disciples would pass on the historical record. They would preach the gospel. They would write the scripture that we today gather and believe because of their testimony, because of what happened to them. And so Thomas is a testimony to the fact that, look, I saw, I, I didn't believe, I, I, was, I disbelieved in, in Jesus, but I saw, and I'm here to tell you, you can believe, and Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed are we. And so today we all sit here, blessed, those who believe, because Jesus said, we haven't seen, you haven't touched me, but faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And God's done a work in your soul, and that's why you're blessed. You feel blessed, don't you? If you think about your salvation and the fact that out of all the people in the world that God has gifted you with faith and you believe, that's something to, to celebrate. That's something to, to, to give God praise, my God, my Lord, my Savior, like Thomas. Because it's not natural. It's not natural. And so here's the head application. Follow this. Live as a humble hero by remembering that your faith is a gift from God. Remember to live as a humble hero. And why do I say that? Because the fact that God has given you faith to believe puts you in the category of a hero. It does. You have been entrusted with a message to carry and to declare, and to boldly proclaim. Have you not? That's special. The smartest people in the world, the brightest people in the world, can look at the truth that you've looked at and say, eh, nah, I don't think so. But God has blessed you with belief and trust in him. You've seen Jesus, and he's made a difference in your life, and you know it. And he speaks, and he, he, he works, and he reveals himself. And your faith grows, faith upon faith. And what a privilege we have. Yet most of us sit around and we're like, oh, oh, I don't know what to tell my kid. Like we said last week, I'm intimidated by my kid, Stephen said. And he speaks for all of us. That's a humble hero, right? I'm intimidated by my child, but you know what? I'm not going to not do what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do it anyway because I know that God has given me something. He's given me the Holy Spirit. And so our heart, the disciples asked Jesus and Luke to increase our faith, they said. And so the hands application is ask Jesus to increase your faith. The disciples say, please, more faith. Jesus, I need more faith. And you know what Jesus is probably going to say to you? He's going to say, right here, spend time with me. Get to know me. Be like Enoch who walked with God, like Elijah, like the people of the New Testament who, filled with the Holy Spirit, carried this word in their heart and were so passionate about it that they gave it to us through the written record. And we have today, and we have faith, and we're blessed because of them. Ask God for faith to make an impact. Be a humble hero who realizes God has given you a gift. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Thomas, how that we 
have greater faith and belief in you because of his disbelief. And God, I pray for those here who feel paralyzed by doubt. They feel captivated in their own head by the questions they have. God, help them to take their eyes off of themselves and place it upon you, Jesus, the author, the beginner, and the finisher of their faith. And God, I pray that you will allow us as a community just to continue to grow and keep our eyes up on you so we can be a light to this world. Let our light shine before people. They can see our good works and glorify you, God, because you are glorious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.